You may all be seated. I invite you all at this point to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 32, where we will continue our walk through the patriarchs and who they are and what it will mean for each of us. Right, I hear some pages still rustling, but I will go ahead and read, for this is a long passage. This is the word of our Lord. Jacob went on his way, and the angel of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing him, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him in the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sands of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And, those are, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed the night, that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabuk. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the break of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
And he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of this place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip pocket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This concludes the reading of God's holy, inspired, and errant word. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. What a delight it is to come and be instructed by you from it. We ask that any of the meditations of my heart and the things that I have studied this week, if they are not in accord with your ways, would you let them pass by your people? The things that are from you, would you take them to deep places within our hearts? Would you convict us? Would you make us more like you? Not just for our benefit, but for the sake of your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now, as I prepared for today, I think I was faced with the question that many of us are faced when we read a passage like this. How long does it take to change? Many ask and wonder and feel this way as if things are not changing, as if things are not different, as we wait and long and live within these bodies that we have been given. Yes, we have been changed by faith and we look more like the sun, but we live in the tension of our weakness that each and every one of us experiences and feels. We question the very weakness that is inside of us and within us, and we wonder, will it take 20 years like Jacob? Will it be moments like others? Will it be my whole journey? Now, I would posit before you today that these questions and so many others will be answered from our text as we see another leg of Jacob's journey of faith. Now, it seems that as Jacob is sitting here in this passage, he is left with many questions as well. He's wondering about his brother. Has there been a change? Twenty years have passed since he's seen his brother. Though we do not get to see his brother in this passage, in the immediate passage following, we will. So there's a lot of tension and lead-up that we sit with here today. We must remember as we find ourselves into into our passage, though, this morning, Jacob has stolen his brother's birthright, his blessing. He has gotten from his father. Esau has explicitly stated just a few chapters ago that he planned to kill Jacob. And in Genesis 27, 41... So here we are, 20 years later. How long does it take to change? What has changed? Jacob is wondering, will his brother still want to kill him? Now as I thought about this text, another story came to mind, and that is actually the text that is called 20 Years After. So some of you may know what this is, some of you may not. It is actually a sequel to a very well-known story of the Three Musketeers. As a boy, I loved the swashbuckling ways. I loved the story of the Three Musketeers and enjoyed this story immensely. But as the name implies of the Three Musketeers and the story that unfolds with these men, much changes in 20 years. Careers change. 
One is a priest. One is married. One's a landowner. But in many ways, part of their journey and some of who they are continues to walk out. So the things that you saw in the Three Musketeers, though it's been 20 years, are still a part of these men. Some of their character uh, has changed. But their very nature, something within them, is still there. There's things of betrayal. There's things of loyalty. The questions that our story has before us and our own hearts have before us today are unfolded in that story as well. You see, this is a common theme of humanity. It's a common theme that each and every one of us must wrestle with on our sojourn and trek through this earth. We're faced with our imperfect, fragile human bodies as we come to a story like this. And we must see and meet the living Christ. We must see the many good gifts that we have and how our lives have changed as we have met Christ. But we do consider that sin nature that exists within us and still lurks, and we have that question of how long will it take to change? How long must I toil, must I work, or grow in my sanctification? I would functionally say that's the wrong question, for God will sanctify you. God is at work. God is doing the the very hard work within your life and bringing you towards our sinless, eternal home. We live in that tension of that already, that not yet, that I frequently talk about, that it has already been accomplished by Christ's work upon the cross. But we do not yet have those new bodies. We do not see them in their fullness. We live in these tents. Therein lies the tension. Therein lies the tension that we see in our passage today. And actually, in regard to this passage, I really hope and pray and think that each of us will see that we have all been made new. That if you have met God this morning, He has entirely changed you. You are new. To that end, our story unfolds four components that I think will be helpful for each of us as we walk through our journeys to see about Jacob. So to that end, please look again in your Bibles at Genesis 32, and we will see the first of our four components that I have for us today. The first of these four is the plan. Now, in regard to the plan, we see these actually in the first eight verses of our passage here of this chapter. Our plan, I would actually argue, has two things that are important for us to see. One, the appearance of angels. And two, Jacob's plan. Herein lies, within the difference of those two, a bit of a posture, a bit of a difference of what is the difference between God and man. Some of these questions that each of us are confronted with. As we look at these things and see that Jacob has truly changed, that there is a plan, though, that he has, that I would argue is a bit different than God's plan. That we see that God has a plan. He comes with the form of a messenger. Jacob actually, in these moments and in this place, says something powerful. After he has met this angel, after he has seen him, he says here in 32, this is God's camp. Then he actually goes on, and the name there means two camps. And so he says this is functionally, many people would believe, the camp of God and the camp of man or the camp of Jacob. We walk through this and see, though, that this passage here has a word that is the same word that was used in Genesis 28, 12, when it was before his 20-year journey that he was fleeing and running away from his brother Esau. The first time that God met him, he is using the same language here again that God is showing him in his kindness that he is God. He is with them. The plan has not changed. That he is 
the eternal God. Now the question, of course, is in his mind, that is of Jacob's mind, is has Esau changed? Functionally, that gets us to our second part of that of Jacob. He's wondering here, has Jacob changed? And so he develops a plan. So we saw God's plan of that of sending an angel, and now we see the plan of Jacob. And in his hand and in his ways, he is planning to engage with his brother and tell him about the riches and the things that he has. He even says so much so that he says he is a servant of him. Now it actually makes me think back to when somebody some years ago, when I was considering going to the missions field and then ended up going, somebody told me these good words that have stuck with me to this day. Moving somewhere does not change you. The 747 principle does not change you. Meaning, if you get onto a 747, you get onto an airplane, who comes with you? You do. You're still going somewhere. Does God work? Does he change you when you climb onto that airplane and you go someplace? Yes, of course. But be mindful. Remember the fact that God has come with you. And your nature is still there. So we see in this passage, we see a bit of Jacob, his scheming, the ways that he has actively and cleverly worked before in the past. I see, think we see a little bit of that here in this passage here with his plan. He's beginning to scheme and put together a plan in such a way that will help his good. Yes, he's claiming the blessings and promises and covenant of God, but even with claiming the covenant of God, we see a bit of his natural nature and disposition. So I think as we see these things, as we consider these things, yes, Jacob then does have a different response than he has had in other times. His response does grow. His response does look different. We, we think about these things and we know that as it says in verse 5, what does he want? He wants favor in the sight of his Lord, that being his brother. So he's establishing some level of subservience to his brother. He is establishing, I think in some ways, and saying, I've done something wrong. There's something that is different in what it is that I should have done. But look and see what Esau's response was in verse 6. There isn't one. We came to your brother Esau. He's coming to meet you. There are 400 men with them. So we're not given the words of what it is that Esau says. We're not told explicitly here in this moment from the text what it was that Esau said. But there's actions. And thinking of the actions of his brother that he knew 20 years earlier, thinking about what it was that he knew about Esau and how his brother had said that he planned to kill him, and thinking about the, the brother he grew up with, there would be much that is going on with his own heart. Actually, the text says that's exactly what's going on with his own heart. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. It's the posture of his heart. Down in his core, he's drawn towards fear and is anxiously protecting himself and working to protect himself in ways that are common to the human experience. He's protecting his own hide. He's mixing in the certain promises of God with his own nature and some of what it is that is here, and he's saying, well, half might die and half might live. I'm going to set him up in two camps. I've got this great plan. I'm not going to trust in the opportunities and realities of God who has come in this, angels, in this form and say that he will bless me. He's functionally divided his camp. Now, Calvin would disagree with me a little bit here on this point, and so I tread dangerously on ground that is different than Calvin's. But Calvin says this, actually, by this scheme, he does offer half of his family to be slaughtered 
then the promised inheritance would still come to the remainder who survived. I do think that is part of it, but I think there's a bit of fear. To his nature, he's scheming. He's dividing his land. I know there is trust. We can see that there is trust of Jacob. One, we've already seen a bit of that. And two, we're going to see more of that here in just a second with his prayer. We're going to see that of a godly man's response. Actually, let's turn to that now, and I think it's important for us as we turn to our second point, of that of the prayer We need to expound on this passage and see what it is that is truly going on. Because we're talking much about the character of Jacob. We see in this narrative that of the story of a man. But I do not want you to think in the midst of this that this is all about Jacob. That this should be all about only this man. Be like Jacob or don't be like Jacob. No. This is a story about the living God. This is a story about his character. A character that is good, that we can trust, that we can know. And Jacob functionally walks that out here in these passages, in this passage for us, because what does he do? He he has this plan, but then Jacob turns to prayer. In crisis, there's a reality that he actually has two components. And what does he actually do first? I think it's very important that we look at the first part of his prayer. He talks about the character of God. He starts his prayer in such a way that I believe is helpful for each and every one of us that we should remember who God is first and his character and who it is that he is to each and every one of us. He's reflecting on God. That immutability that we talked about last week, he's remembering that God is unchanging. Now the second thing we do see in Jacob's prayer is his petition. We saw the character of God, and it is consistent and firm. But he does bring before the Lord his petition. Why does he do this? Again, I believe it's operating from that place of anxiety of fear. We're not told, as he begins to pray, that he gets the perfect peace of God. And actually, the perfect peace of God still means sometimes that there is the fear of man that is within us, for we are, again, frail and fragile beings. Again, in verse 11, he even says this, I fear him that he may come and attack me. So Jacob is acknowledging before his God that he is afraid, that he is anxious, that in his prayers he's called upon God and said, I know about your character, and now I need you to hear my request, my plea. Because I am afraid. I am just a man. I do not know what my brother will do to me in this moment. I am trusting in the certain realities and promises of you, God, as it says at the end of verse 12. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sands of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. And actually in that, he is looking to this and he is looking to this passage and we see that he is again turning to the character of God and the promises of God and he's claiming the promises of God over his life, over his family, saying, God, would you be consistent to your character? I know that you will. So even in his faithlessness, he is still being given the gift of faith. He is still, over these 20 years, there's a picture on display of the man who Jacob has become. That is what we are to see in his prayer as we see this second point. I think it's important for us because after this, again, what does he do? In some ways he plans, but we see that of the procession. We see that of what is going forth. This procession here actually has a couple of components that are also really important for us to see. Why? What is it that we see? Well, he's sending out cattle before him. 
There's a picture and a posture of what he's doing that they're actually physically before him, that they're going out. His family is across the river as well, that there's something that is going on within this that actually in ancient Near East uh, culture, this could have been something that was a component of that culture. That could be a part of what is going on. Could it also be that he is protecting himself? Commentators are split on this. Commentators that I respect both of their views, and I, I understand and see this, and I say, so what is it? What is it that we're seeing, actually, as we're looking at this procession? Is it a self-protective character of Jacob? Or is this rituals of the East that you are to take and put your gifts out there in front of you and let them be offered up first? Now, I think I would have to look at this and say, I believe there is some of both. Some of this is actually because, one, he is trying to buy his brother off. Why do I say that? Again, our text says that. Our text tells us today that he is functionally trying to buy off his brother. We see that actually here in, in verse 20. Verse 20 says it this way. He's trying to appease his brother. He wants to appease his brother. He wants to bring something to him. Is he sorry? Is he contrite? Some commentators actually believe there's a ton here. That's the thing here. He's sending out cattle before him, but the second component is, look at the size of this gift. There's over 500 cattle that he is sending out in front of him. That's a monstrous gift in many different ways. And I, I tried to study and figure out, was there anything significant about the numbers or things of this nature? I couldn't find that there was anything significant, specific about these numbers, other than the fact that some commentators actually believe this might have been the entirety of his herd. There are some that believe that the amount of what he's giving back to his brother is a posture of saying, it's all yours, but I'm sorry. There's a chance that it's not everything, but either way, it's substantial, it's significant. In today's dollars, I tried to go up and look up cattle prices and figure out what this would be. This would be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, probably close to half a million dollars that he is giving to his brother. 20 years of work. That's a lot of work. That is a lot that he is giving as a gift. The size of this gift is quite large. Now, we are not told the exact resolution here in this passage with Esau. For those who would like to, you can continue to read ahead, or if you know your Bibles, you know that there will be promising resolution. But it's amazing that actually the text takes a bit of a turn right here, and it takes a turn into a very common passage in a place that many people have struggled with before me and many people will struggle with after me. And what it is that is going on with this text, and even in our ESV Bibles, it says, Jacob wrestles with God. So to that end, as we get to verses 22 through 32, I believe it's important as we look at Jacob wrestling with God, we are to consider the promise. Verses 22 through 32 has a picture of that promise, has a picture of what it is that is going to happen. Jacob, as it says, he does call this place Penuel, or Peniel, meaning this is a vision or the face of God. So some say that, looking at that literally from the Hebrew and saying that this is the face of God, that this is going before God's face physically that we see. We do see an example of that that has happened already for Abraham. I think that's a possibility. So this could be a theophany. This could be a Christophany, that many would argue and say that this is a Christophany, that we would say, why? Why do some believe that? Well, because the God-man himself, Christ Jesus, did take on human and bodily form. So it could be a Christophany. It could be a theophany. What does our text say about who this is? A man wrestled with Jacob. So we say, is this an angel? We can tell that it is more than just simply a man, that it's not just a physical man only, that it's not just some powerful he-man living in the desert choosing to wrestle Jacob in the midst of the night. 
It is more than just a physical man. There is absolutely also because of the reality that there's a blessing that comes as well. This is more. Jacob is absolutely wrestling with and meeting God in this place. Is it, again, physically God? Is it physically Jesus? Is it an angel? Is it a man? I don't believe that our text gives us the explicit convincing argument here about which one it is, but I am convinced that there is an absolute wrestling with God that happens. There's a a minimum, a spiritual wrestling with God that happens here in this place with the living God. That Jacob comes face to face with God and meets him in such a way that there is something that changes within him. What does he even do? All night he wrestles. All night we get to morning And the stranger and the person who was there actually says, release me, morning has come. Now there's a bit of a cultural component that I believe that a fight, it looks like from that culture and that time, probably did not last more than a night. It would not be appropriate for to go go on beyond that. Some believe it comes to the nature of the speaking of who this man is, that the darkness has come, the light is now coming. We're not told, other than it says here in this place, release me, the morning has come. But Jacob then says, what is true to his character. He's pursued so many things. He has wanted a blessing. He's wanted his brother's birthright. That Then he even stole from his father that was blind blessings. And I wouldn't say that he stole, but he took from Laban some of the cattle, and that was there, and he, he earned it, but those were cattle and things that he wanted blessing. He wanted physical, tangible reminders that God had been faithful to him that God was with him, that God was constant and sure and steady. Now, in this passage, I believe that we get exactly that. We're actually given a bit of a sign of a reminder of the covenant here in this passage when we see this here, that there is something that happens, that the man wrestles with him and touches his hip and puts it out of socket. So again, that's not just a man to be able to touch somebody's hip and to put it out of socket. There is power in this. He's meeting with the living God, that there is some force that Jacob is wrestling with that he at this point realizes and knows that this is God. What does he do? Does he release? No, he holds on to his God. He says, I need that blessing. God, I want you to bless me. So the man then even says, well, what is your name? And of course, Jacob. But what does he do then at that point? He does something powerful and what God can do and God has done before. He says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. So he's changing the name, that of Israel, that of understanding that one who has striven with God, one who strives with God, some would say that God strives with man. But I think it could be taken either way. It's important for us to look at that, that, that there's this striving that he has done with God, that he has wrestled with God here in this place. And God gives him a physical reminder. God cripples him in his hip. But with that, there's pain. As we see, he walks with a limp after this. Jacob now has a physical reality and a reminder upon his body in this way. He has others too, but in this way, he has a reminder of how he's wrestled with God. That every time he takes that step, I'm sure there was a bit of pain. I'm sure that there was some kind of a reminder, but in that, does he complain? Does he remember? Instead, he remembers his God. He looks to who he is, what he's done. I would argue, actually, in this suffering, 
Actually, he has met the living God. He has seen the living God. That he has come face to face with the living God using his words, that of uh, of Penuel. I've come face to face with God and lived. God works in and through pain and suffering. God is at work in these places just like he is at work in the place of Jacob. I consider that of a seminary professor of mine, Scott Sunquest, who is now the president at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And he talks about scriptures most frequently, and the quickest way that people grow is often in suffering, often when there's pain. That's also how he grows his church. That's the way that he's grown his church. We've seen that consistently. We've seen that here in Jacob's life. He's had a 20-year journey that was difficult. We've seen that in places like Job that is often, often, uh, often referenced when we think about suffering within his word. We think about his apostles themselves beaten, martyred, in agony, living a life for their Christ. We should look to, our suffering, look to Christ and his suffering as well. Our suffering Savior Jesus, the God-man, shows that there is suffering and pain that God uses for His purpose and sending Him to the cross. He who is sinless and then resurrecting for sin. There was suffering in the cross. There was pain in the cross. So even in places like this, as we look to Jacob, we have to see that this is a reference that we see that there is a Christ who is coming for him and a Christ who has come for us. There is an absolute certain reality in the promises of God, the confident blessings of that of Christ's kingdom. Does he become more anxious? Does he run away? No, we're going to see in the coming weeks he's going to meet his brother. He's going to go out and engage with him. That this man who has wrestled with God, who is now crippled, who his name has now been changed to Israel, says there in at verse 30, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. He looks to God for his deliverance. He sees that God has delivered him in his suffering, in this difficulty, in these places of pain, these places of unknown. So I'd invite you today to consider this plan and this prayer, this procession, and most of all the promise that we see of what God is doing in this world, what it is that He's doing in your world, I would ask for you to each consider. As we consider what happened with Jacob, how he has met God and it changes everything. And arguably that happened 20 years ago, but everything has changed in his life. There have been difficulties, there have been struggles, there is striving, there is still striving that will come. But meeting God has changed everything for him. There should be encouragement within this, but there is the reality that in these takeaways, sometimes there's a discomfort. For a call to come to God is not as easy as we would hope this side of eternity as it would be. There are days that, yes, of course they're comfortable. We have personal peace on some days. There might be affluence in your life. We all know many days there are not unexpected phone calls, unexpected relationship changes, unexpected things of those that happen around you where you're not sure how people will respond. As we look to these things and we remember and see in Jacob's heart, what does he do? He turns to God. His character has been changed. His sin nature is still there, but in that moment of his nature, he is rejecting his very nature and turning more and more to God. More and more he's looking to him So I would encourage you in this place, for your hearts, to ask where it is that the temptations, trials, and struggles of this day are difficult. 
where it is that you need to go like Jacob to your father in prayer. You need to go before him and plead his certain promises, the promise of salvation that it is for you as for each and every one of us who are part of that covenant family believing in Christ, of the faith, that gift that he has given to us. To remember those places, to check in in your heart, be confident in the reality that in your suffering, in your pain, in the broken hip of Jacob, God is at work. God is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They will not. His word says so. They cannot. So another point to consider, please, just pray. Pray that he would make your desires in alignment with his. You say, I I can't pray that way. Well, then pray that he would make them that way. You say, I can't pray for desires in that fashion. Take your groanings, your longings, your sufferings to him. He's big enough. He's able to sustain you in those places. In this lesson from Jacob, though he has much that is not good, he's trusting in the certain promises of a Savior that is to come. He's trusting in that Christ that we are invited to as well. That Savior did come. That Savior has come. Now with much rejoicing, we must in our pain and suffering as well go before that Savior and see that Jesus has defeated sin, death, and the grave, made full payment for our sins. Death is broken. Rest in that certainty today. Our eternal homes are coming. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, would you make us more like Jesus? We ask and pray that those who are suffering today, whatever it is that they are personally going through, that you would give signs and reminders of your faithfulness to them. Would it be through your word and the preaching of it this day? Would it be in other places as well, in, in the general revelation that we see each and every day? How you are building your church, growing your church, that you will pursue us until the very end, that you will make us new. We thank you for the lessons of Jacob how he's not a model to pursue, that even we see his fears, his pride, his distress in moments that we all have, but we claim and pray the blood of you, Christ, over us. Your work on the cross, your rising for our sins, we know we can boldly approach your throne because of your work. Look, help us look towards our eternal homes. In the strong and perfect name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.